Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. This is the book of Revelation, session 38, Protection in the Midst. And what we're uh, doing really with this session, I kind of threw this one in extra. We have been having a lot of conversations in our uh, uh, end of the um, session uh, talk back and, and uh, questions um, about what does protection look like uh, in the end times. And so I wanted to give us a session dedicated to that. And uh, as I was kind of thinking about that and praying about that, uh, I had the Lord give me kind of a fun little uh, nudge today. A uh, little prophetic nudge that I think will play into some of our conversation, uh, which I hope will be fun. So, um, protection in the midst, in the midst of what? Well, most specifically in the midst of the Great Tribulation. Uh, in the Great Tribulation um, that we've already been studying, we've been looking at the first seals, uh, the first four seals. And I want to touch tonight mostly on what protection looks like in those first four seals, just because it's the content that we've covered so far. Um, but it's not the only uh, protection. Um, but it, it will help us answer some of that. So I want to give us, what does the landscape look like uh, with these first four seals unfolded, um, or these uh, first four seals broken, um, giving a little bit of a recap of what we've studied the last few weeks, but mostly talking about what has that done to planet Earth? What have those first four seals done to uh, the climate that we're used to in, you know, in America, in the world scene, what does life look like after seals one, two, three, and four have been released? Revelation six verses one through about, you know, eight, I'm somewhere in there. What does a life look like? Well, first the countryside will be war torn. I want you to think about the planet uh, being in the throes of war as opposed to uh, life looking kind of uh, soft and, and, uh, and easy like it does right now, the world having a, a war-torn feel about it. So think about, you know, if you've ever seen a war movie and what life looks like in the landscape of a, of a city and a nation that's been at war, think about that being uh, covering a significant portion of the entire earth. Uh, because that's what life is going to look like after the seal one and two, and well, and, and really four as well. Second, the political climate will be toxic. Seal one talked about the release of the Antichrist and what he's going to be doing and forming national alliances and global alliances and, and uh, causing this war to go forth. We can really be thinking about it as World War III and really the first world war. Because both World War I and World War II did not encompass the whole world. In fact, they encompassed a fraction of the world. It's, we call it World War I and World War II, and it's a bit of a Western perspective, which isn't bad, but most of the earth wasn't thinking about what was happening uh, in World War I uh, and, and more in World War II, but still only a fraction of the earth was directly impacted. But the, the uh, political climate will be toxic because of all the alliances that will have been formed with the Antichrist. Not just the national, but even local uh, political environments. We've talked a little bit about the, uh, the thought process that while a nation might align with the Antichrist, there might be mayors in cities that are saying, well, we're not going to align with our nation. We are not aligning with the Antichrist. And that just the difficulties that that causes and the, the pressures, it will be a, a very uh, intense hour politically. Global economics will shift. Uh, 
You know, when the strains of plague and famine have hit the earth in a global way that we're told will happen in uh, the, uh, the third and fourth seals, when that happens and it's, you're now talking about a global reality of famine and plagues breaking out, uh, you're going to have significant shift in, uh, in job demand. Uh, you're going to have a lot more job demand for cleaning up dirty fields than you are for farming because you're going to have an issue with there's not enough crops, there's not enough this, there's not enough that. You're going to have a significant shift in the global economics, uh, not just in the, in the area, arena of jobs, but also where is the money? You know, when it comes down to it and, uh, and you have a, a, uh, a monopoly on food and fuel, you are going to own the world in a way that right now, Amazon probably owns the world, uh, but Amazon will not be so useful unless Amazon has access to significant sources of fuel and significant sources of food in that day. The economics are gonna shift to those that have what is most in demand because of what is most lacking. It's gonna shift things drastically. I mean, the, the landscape is going to shift Resources will be scarce because of war, because of plagues, because of all these difficulties. There's going to be resources that are currently in great abundance that are going to be in scarce supply. And those are then going to, there's going to be great demand on those resources, not just food and fuel, but many others besides. One of the things that we've not really talked about in the process of this, and we'll touch on it more when we start to study the Antichrist, when we get to Revelation chapter 13. But uh, one of the things that's going to shift greatly that we need to be thinking about, that we need to have our heads wrapped around a little bit, because in lesser degree, these things are happening now, in significantly lesser degree. But these things are happening now, okay? There's going to be a significant shift in the leadership of the body of Christ. Great changes are going to be made when one pastor takes the mark of the beast. What does that mean for his entire congregation? And now he's preaching beast messages, okay? This is real, okay? And again, to a lesser degree, that's happening now. To a lesser, lesser degree. But it's in that, we are being prepared for the future now by the lesser uh, demons we're facing, by the lesser difficulties. And I call them lesser, not because they're, not to, dem uh, to diminish their pain in this hour, but lesser by comparison to what is coming, okay? What about the large number of church leaders in cities that are going to be martyred. So you're going to have lots and lots of martyrdom breaking out because of opposition against the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is going to martyr lots of people. Well, a lot of those are going to be church leaders. So what happens when significant leadership in churches are martyred? Significant church leadership give over to the enemy. These are going to change. This is it's going to make the landscape of the church look very different in about one minute, okay? When this stuff starts to unfold, Church as we know it is going to drastically shift for a hundred reasons. War will have destroyed many of the church buildings. The Antichrist will have seized all the remaining church buildings for his purposes. I mean, in any of the areas where he's got jurisdiction, he's not going to just let churches keep going and operate in total opposition to him. Okay, he's going to utilize those church buildings. One of the things that the Antichrist, uh, he is going to be um, really talented at is annexing previous systems and then using them for his purposes. Taking over previously established systems, governmental, economics, religious, he's gonna be great at taking over the thing that used to be and now converting it to his purposes for anybody that will fall in line. 
There's going to be those in that hour. This is going to be a, a big shift in church leadership. There are going to be those in that hour that have been paying attention to the storyline that will be unfolding at that point. They will have been paying attention to that storyline for decades. There will be people with great clarity in the greatest hour of human history and the greatest trials that the church has ever faced. And the believers will be looking for leaders that know what they're talking about. Believers will be looking for people going, who has any revelation of what is happening right now and what we should do? Are there any out there that understand? And there are going to be many who were nobodies, who nobody had ever heard of, that nobody cared about, that all of a sudden will be looked to as leaders because they understand the times and know what the church should do in that hour. And that's going to change the landscape of church leadership. All of these things are going to be drastically shifting in a very short period of time. When I say short period of time, I don't mean these things are going to be happening next week. I mean, when these things start to hit, it's going to take one minute for these things to transition in a big way. That's the short period of time I'm referring to. I don't know when this stuff's going to go down. But one thing we do know is your Bible is either true or it lies. And if it's true, these things are going to happen to planet Earth. Okay? Now, let me jump into Psalm 91. All right? One of the uh, big questions we keep asking around here, and this is so normal, this is such a, a very normal default thought process, we start to hear about all these problems and we go, what about me? What, what's going to happen to me and my family and, and what about me? It's a very normal question that we have. We want to know what it is that we can expect from the Lord, what it is that we want to be preparing for in the realm of suffering, what we want to be preparing for in the realm of protection. We want to know. We want answers to these questions. It's a very normal thing to want to know. Well, this was kind of fun, Okay. I'm on my way here today, and I don't have my notes all wrapped up. I normally spend Saturdays prepping, and I've got a good game plan for what I'm going to do on a Saturday night, but I don't have my notes done. I spend all day Saturday preparing my notes. That's kind of how this works, okay? Part of that is just so that I've got it fresh uh, for Saturday night. So I'm on the way here, and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, help me get ready, you know, prepare me for tonight. And right as I pray that, or, or within a minute of that, I don't know, because my head was still in that prayer, Right as I was doing that, this 350Z pulls up next to me and on the side window, so not a bumper sticker on the back, but a bumper sticker on the side window that happens to be facing me, it just says in, these, in this cool font, Psalm 91. And I was like, okay. I was like, Psalm 91. I was like, yeah, actually, that, that might work. So I, 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 I have Siri read to me Psalm 91 in the car and I'm being reminded Oh, wow, I've actually got a lot of history with this psalm that I forgot about. I got a lot of history with this psalm. But again, I'm praying, Lord, prepare me for tonight, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 91, the, the bulk, of, bulk of it. You can go read the whole thing. It's in your Bible. But uh, Psalm 91, 1 through 16, the bulk of it. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and show him my salvation. I was like, okay, Lord. Yeah. That's what we're talking about tonight. Good job. And uh, I just want to touch on some of the details here of Psalm 91 because as we're talking about protection in the midst of the trial, protection in the midst of the great tribulation, protection in the midst of plague and famine. And remember, what we read uh, last week was we really highlighted uh, seal four, which is a fourfold judgment that's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. It's the fourfold judgment of sword, or you could call it war, of famine, plagues, and wild beasts. And while that seems crazy, that fourfold judgment, that specifically those four things, is repeated over and over in the Old Testament as kind of like when God gets to the end of, uh, you know, of grace and mercy and is now going to start releasing judgment in order to turn a people back to him. Uh, these are the things that he releases, these fourfold. So last week we're focusing on those four things. And this week I was planning on answering the question, what does protection look, look like in the midst of those four things because we haven't covered all the rest of the things in the book of Revelation? Well, it just so happens that Psalm 91 talks about those four things. Okay, so let's just look at this first because the premise, it's important that we get this. I, I don't want us to, uh, I, I don't want us to miss this point. I think it's very important, okay? Psalm 91 verse one, the opening of Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty. And then the rest of Psalm 91 describes what resting in the shadow of the almighty looks like. So Psalm 91 is the rest, verses two through, you know, whatever, 16, they're not separate from the introductory verse. They are the expression of the introductory verse, okay? It's an overflow. <clears throat> Resting in the shadow of the Almighty. Doesn't that just sound like a safe place to be? To rest in the shadow of the Almighty? But it's very important we understand the context. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. This is really important. I, I, I want your attention on this one. This is important to me. We have dumbed down phrases and Bible verses and we have made so many things that God was talking about in a specific way, we've made them broad and universal. Let me tell you how we read this. If you're saved, then God will do all this stuff for you. That's how we read it. Because we have been trained, unfortunately, we have been trained to read verses like this that say, if you dwell in the shelter of the Most High, we have been trained to make that think if I gave my life to Jesus and that is not what the verse says. The verse is talking about those that dwell in the shelter of the Most High. What's the shelter of the Most High? The 24-7 house of prayer in David's day. The shelter of the Most High was talking about the tabernacle of David which was set up on Mount Zion in which the, tab or the Ark of the Covenant was in the center of the tabernacle and they were surrounding it with singers and musicians 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what the shelter of the Most High is. And what's being written by the psalmist who's singing this psalm, because Psalm 91 isn't neat Bible verses, it's a song. Psalm 91 was being sung by singers and musicians that are around the Ark of the Covenant in the shelter of the Most High. And they're saying, we recognize God that if we have a lifestyle connected to the presence of God in the house of prayer, we will experience blessings that are unique to that. 
So when we read Psalm 91, we need to make sure we understand this phrase, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. I just want to encourage you to do a word study on that phraseology, on that, on that phrase. Not just that one, but ones like it. Shelter of the Most High, the dwelling of the Most High. Those phrases, they're referring to the tabernacle of David set up on Mount Zion. This does not mean saved. This means the relationship that the individual has to the house of prayer. Now, that is a bold statement, but let me now take one step back and tell you a prophecy from the great apostle of our faith. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, that's not a condemnation. Well, it is. More than that, it's a prophecy about what most certainly will become the case. The people of God will not survive in the trials that are coming. The, the church will not survive unless the church converts and becomes a praying people for real a praying people. Unless the church becomes a house of prayer. House of prayer is not a title. If you have house of prayer in the title of your organization, that may mean something. It doesn't mean anything just because it's in the title of, of an organization. House of prayer is a reality. It means the people of God are gathering to pray more than they do everything else collectively. They are gathering to be a praying people. Before this thing's over, the church will become a house of prayer. And I don't mean like the prayer room missions base. I think we're trying to experiment right now. We're trying to figure out what the house of prayer is because no one knows. Because it's not being done because it's not a reality in the earth that much right now. So yes, we're taking some steps in that direction. But I don't think that we, we're what it's talking about when it says my house will be called a house of prayer. I think we're on a journey of trying to discover what that looks like. And somewhere three or five or ten steps down the road, we'll figure it out together as the body of Christ. But back to this verse, Psalm 91. The one who dwells, whoever dwells, in that reality... In the house of prayer reality, that's the one that will experience the benefits and the blessings that are then enumerated uh, after that. So this doesn't mean if you're saved, you'll experience these things. It's important detail. It's a very important distinction. Okay? But again, where we're headed, this will be the only version of the church that's going to make it. Okay? Everything else is not going to work. All right? Because we're going to really need to lean into Jesus. All right. With that being said, what is promised as part of the shadow of the Almighty? What is promised in the shelter of the Most High? Well, how about protection from war? Remember, sword was one of the four things on the list from last week. Verse uh, 91.5 says, <clears throat> You'll not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. There's a couple of other references in there that say it uh, pretty clearly as well about protection, about the day of trouble, those kinds of things, referring to war, all right? But it's also in Psalm 27, verse five and six. You guys are uh, in the, who've been around a little bit, you've heard us talk about Psalm 27, four, over and over and over and over. One thing I ask of the Lord, that one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. Again, it's a house of prayer verse. Dwell in the house of the Lord. Dwell in the house of prayer. But look what the next verse says, verse five. Verse five says, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. It's safety in his dwelling, not safety just because I'm saved. It's safety in his dwelling. He'll hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. 
He'll set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted over my enemies who surround me. At his uh, sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy and I will make music to the Lord. So there's protection in the area of war, which is the context that David was talking about in Psalm 27. Next, how about protection from plagues? Psalm 91, five through six. You will not fear the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Oh my goodness. The, the fourth seal was sword, plague, uh, uh, something else, something else. We'll get to it in a second. Okay? I mean, it's, here it is. You won't have to fear plague. You won't have to fear seal four. I mean, it's so clear. In the temple, in the tabernacle, in the house of prayer, you won't have to fear seal four. All right? Arguably, the word pestilence can refer to and reference and be connected with famine. Because many times famines would be caused, uh, would be the result of pestilence hitting a nation, hitting crops, hitting this and that. So I didn't put it in there as one that's straight up because it doesn't say the word famine, but arguably pestilence refers to famines, or at least infers famines, okay? But we'll get to that in a minute, even if it doesn't cover it. Protection from wild beasts. No. Surely that's not in Psalm 91. Yeah, it's in Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the, and the serpent. Why in the world does Psalm 91 say you'll have authority over animals? Why in the world does Psalm 91 say you will tread on, meaning you'll have authority over, you'll put your foot on the back of their neck. Who puts a foot on the neck of a lion? Okay, you will tread on lions and serpents and Oh, but cats are going to kill you. I'm sure, you know, if you got the lion, but a cat, that cat's just going to eat you alive. No, the point is you're going to have authority over the animal kingdom. You're going to have authority over the wild beasts that are attacking everybody else. When seal four breaks loose and wild beasts are going everywhere, those who dwell in the shelter of the most high, they will experience the shadow of the almighty. Part of the shadow of the almighty is protection from wild beasts. The very things that we we're talking about last week, okay? Harm from all disasters. So this is where we can throw famine in and anything else. 91, 7 through 10. A thousand may fall at your side. That is going to be very real. 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes. And see the punishment of the wicked. Because that's what the seals are for. The punishment of the wicked. The seals are not against the church. They're against the lost world that has aligned itself with the Antichrist to kill the church. Okay? You will see it. You'll see it, but it won't touch you. It will not come near you. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Psalm 91 we need to be getting Psalm 91 in us. All right, now let me tell you a funny way that the Lord wanted to make sure Psalm 91 got in us by getting it in me early, early, early in my walk with Christ. I find myself at this conference. I've, been, I've known the Lord for a year. I find myself at this conference, first charismatic anything I ever went to. I got tricked into going there. I thought charismatics were crazy. I didn't, I, anyway, I showed up at this thing. And there's this guy named Mike Bickle there preaching at this conference. And, 
And then there's, there's these, these other guys, uh, you know, Rick Joyner and, and Jack Deere and, and Paul Kane and Tom Davis and just a bunch of these guys I've never heard of. I don't know. And they begin to prophesy and, uh, up on, uh, on the, uh, the mic. And one of the things that just had happened is this is 2000. And IHOP Kansas City had just started just a few months before, okay? So they're now going 24-7 in uh, IHOP Kansas City, and they're talking about, Mike's up there on the stage talking about, there are these houses of prayer, God's going to birth them all over, it's going to be great, da-da-da. Same night, the, uh, one of the guys uh, shares, and, and he says, listen, I had this vision about the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, an end-time revival breaking out, because there would be these houses of prayer all over the city of Dallas-Fort Worth. And I'm hearing this, I don't, and none of it makes any sense to me. I don't understand. I'm like, these are weird things being said by weird people, okay? So, uh, but the other thing that happens that night is this girl comes up to me. She was a young life leader uh, in the area that I kind of knew barely. She comes over to me and she begins to prophesy the most accurate prophetic words I've ever gotten to this day. And I instantly get filled with the Holy Spirit and I begin to convulse with the power of God resting on me. Now, the reason I share that detail is because this young lady at this point has now the most profound accuracy in my life, the most profound voice into my life as far as I'm sure when she talks that God's speaking because man, have I heard the Lord speak through this girl. It's just a few days later, maybe that night, I don't think it was that night, but within a week, she calls me in the middle of the night and she says, Brad, you need to get up right now and memorize Psalm 91 right now. And I said, I I've known the Lord for like a year and a half. I'm like, okay, okay, prophet lady, I'll, I'll get up because I don't know what else to do. I'm like, you, you called me. And, okay, so I don't know any better. So I get up right then and for the next two hours, I memorize Psalm 91 in the middle of the night. Okay, I have never had that sort of thing happen ever since and Please do not, any of y'all call me, trying to get me to memorize Bible verses. I have, from that moment to this, I've never had anybody wake me up in the middle of the night with a prophetic word. I've never had anybody tell me in a way that I believed that I needed to memorize a Bible passage. I have never had anything like that happen in 20 years. But here we are, 20 years later, and I didn't realize in that hour, I needed Psalm 91 in me. I needed it in me because it took me years to understand. Because when I was memorizing it, I had no idea why. And the next few years, I had no idea why I knew Psalm 91. I'd hear little references here and there, and I could repeat it and then finish it out because I've gotten out of practice. But in that hour, I could because I, I knew Psalm 91. I had no idea why Psalm 91 mattered until I stumbled into this whole prayer movement thing. Until I found myself knee-deep in the prayer movement, and I went, Oh my gosh, it's marching orders for the church at the end of the age. Psalm 91, that's not something I need. That's like all I need. Like that right there is the word. We've got to be people who are immersed in the presence of God, who together are knit into night and day prayer communities, who are believing in faith for God to do the miraculous, even greater things than these. We've got to be a people that are contending for this because there's trouble coming. Because Psalm 91 is all about trouble. Psalm 91 doesn't make a lick of sense if everything continues to go on business as usual. But when trouble starts to hit in profound ways, we're going to need Psalm 91. But we're going to need Psalm 91 to deal with plagues, wild beasts, war. I mean, 
Psalm 91 isn't just about bad. It's about specific bads. It's about seal four bads. And we're going to need it. So I share that with you because it's kind of fun, right? All right, well, let me, uh, let me move on, give you a couple more details here, a couple more ideas, and then we'll break into some discussion groups, okay? I want to talk about suffering in two forms. And I'll just warn you, next week, we're going to talk about the doctrine of suffering and martyrdom, okay? So that's going to be kind of intense. This one's going to set us up for it a little bit, all right? But I want to touch on suffering in the midst of protection, because if we've got Psalm 91 going for us, there's going to be a lot of good things happening, but it doesn't mean there won't be any bad things happening. There's going to be plenty of bad things happening. And I want to touch on a couple of dynamics of what that looks like. First, suffering in the context of the Great Tribulation and all of the wake of these uh, first four seals. And then second, suffering under the Antichrist's leadership, okay, which is a separate category in my mind. <clears throat> well, uh, number three here on page four. The ramifications of World War III. Believers are really going to have to face some intense things because of the coming war. It's, a fa it's fair to start to think about the kinds of things and difficulties that believers are going to face in a comparison to what things look like at the height of Nazi Germany if you were a believer in Germany. If you were a believer in Jesus in that hour, you were having to face some significant pressures, struggles, pains, problems. There was significant problems for you as a believer in Jesus in Nazi Germany. And actually, if there weren't significant problems for you, you probably were super compromised. Okay, it probably means you weren't a believer, though you might have called yourself one. Okay, this, this, is, this is gonna be some real difficulties that are gonna come. So actually, it's the kindness of the Lord that we would have World War II in recent enough human history to study that we could look at it and see what life looked like for the believer, what life looked like on a Tuesday down the streets of Germany. What did life look like? And not just Germany, but other nations besides. It's helpful that we actually have that because when, when the country is ruled by completely, I don't mean some, completely unrighteous policies and positions, this is gonna change life dramatically and there's gonna be suffering that's, uh, that's a result of that. In addition, like we talked about last week, how many people are going to get drafted into the war and this and that. There's going to be so much difficulty. How about the trials from famine? You know, when famine is everywhere, all the extras go out the window. All the things that we're so used to, the creature comforts. I mean, you know, going to Starbucks is going to be off the list. You know, I mean, it's, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to be touched by in the midst of famine that are going to absolutely impact Christians. Absolutely. There's going to be significant lack of resources and food supply. And that's, that's going to touch us in real ways. Not to the point, I don't believe, because of Psalm 91 and a hundred other things that say Psalm 91. I don't think to the point of death, but in ways that will be a very real pinch. Ways that we will feel and we will suffer as a result. However, however, very important, that we don't forget John 14, 12, that Jesus prophesied, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and you'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. I gave you a passage there of Jesus multiplying food. Jesus multiplied bread and fishes, and he fed 
thousands and thousands of people with food that should feed two people. Okay? Jesus says, you're going to do greater things than I did. I firmly believe the church will be multiplying food. Absolutely will be multiplying food. And this will be part of the answer to the famine. This will even be part of the answer to evangelism. The church having food where there's no food. Because we got it multiplied, will come with us. You know, in the book of Acts, it says that the people uh, were, were fearful to associate with the people of God. Because they saw the presence of God on the church community. They saw signs and wonders. It doesn't mean that they didn't associate. It just meant that they did it with fear and trembling. They had the fear of God on them. They're like, we show up in their meetings and food multiplies. Like, they are a different people. These are a strange people. They're better than us. <laughs> they, know, they know something we don't know. They have access to things we know not of. And that's why people were getting saved. It says people were being added to their, to their numbers daily because they'd show up and they'd see the fellowship of the Spirit and they'd see all this stuff. Well, we're going to see the book of Acts times a billion in the end times. So yes, there will be famine, but there'll also be supernatural multiplication of food. Now, you don't know, does it happen every time? Is it like every person every time? I don't know. I, I don't know how all that stuff works. But I do know that it's going to be a significant component that we also need to be planning on and maybe even practicing, okay? Maybe we need to be practicing the multiplication of food thing so that when we need it, we got it, okay? I'm just saying there's a lot of things in the Word of God that it says we've got access to that we're not moving in, all right? Pain of plagues. The trials of plagues. These plagues are going to be real. Just as a law of first mention, the first mention of plagues in the Bible is referring to, with that specific word, is referring to the frogs in, in Egypt. The multiplication of frogs, which is like the weirdest, worst thing. Because as soon as those frogs start hopping all over you, and it says they will even be on Pharaoh. That is just the oddest phrase to me. It says they will come into your country. They'll be everywhere. They'll be in your cupboards. They will even be on Pharaoh. So at some point, Pharaoh had frogs on him and had to look at that frog and go, well, I'll be darned. Just like Moses said, I have a frog on me. Okay, so the first plague in the Bible that's called a plague, and the plague word is used, is frogs. However, then multiple times in the book of Exodus, it refers to all of the difficulties of Egypt, all of them as plagues. The reason I bring that up is that's going to create some interesting difficulties as well when there's a billion frogs in Arlington or whatever, okay? That's going to cause problems and car wrecks and and weird skid marks and smells you don't like and all kinds of stuff, okay? But when there's a billion dead frogs in Arlington or whatever, I mean, that's gonna, this is gonna touch us even if it doesn't touch us directly. We're not gonna escape the stench of all those frogs and whatever else does what they do. Okay, um, next, beasts causing terror. Another one of those, you know, just difficulties when wild beasts are all over and they're causing problems and now everybody's afraid to go outside because they might get eaten by something, that's going to be like a real issue. Now, again, I think the Lord's going to give us that authority to trample on the wild beasts and to take authority and who knows, who knows what all we'll do in that day. Greater things than these, you know. Jesus commanded a bunch of uh, demons to go into pigs, okay? And then the pigs went and did something crazy. I mean, there's going to be really crazy things that are occurring, okay, in the midst of all this. But one of the things that hit me today that I'd never thought about was how the wild beasts attacking the people who are trying to come get the Christians will work in our favor. 
So you got the Antichrist government that's been uh, assigned with the task of, hey, go find all the churches. But every time they go out to go find all the churches, they get attacked by lions and things. You know, I'm like, oh, it actually works for us. This is, this is good. I like this. That's, that's one way to slow them down a little bit, you know? And so uh, there's just going to be a lot of really interesting dynamics in the area of fear, in the area of, you know, everything that the resources that will be depleted because animals are running about and eating things and messing up stuff and all that. The death of many close to us. This is something that we, we need to begin to prepare for the offense that is going to hit our hearts when Psalm 91.7 becomes reality. Psalm 91.7 doesn't give us any new information. It gives us a profound insight into what life could look like very much at arm's length. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Well, right hand and side doesn't just mean people. It means people that you know, people that are in proximity to you. It's the people that you're used to seeing on the street. It's the people that might be in your own household. It's the people, it's the people, it's the people, okay? Fall at your side, at your right hand. This is really intense. Partnership is required. I just want to uh, end with that, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll break up into groups. I think that the most significant word related to protection in the last days is partnership. I think that the most important word that we could focus on is partnership. Because even the start of Psalm 91 gave us an if clause. You know, whoever dwells in the shelter of the most high. So partnership is going to look like dwelling in the shelter of the most high. Partnership is going to look like a hundred other things as well. We can't expect that we can walk into the end times, do whatever we want, and things are going to go well for us. We need to be those that are in partnership with the Lord, with the written word, with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You know, he's going to release dreams and visions as at no time in human history. We're going to be getting more prophetic information than we've ever had access to before. Part of that is going to be necessity so we don't die tomorrow. And it will be important that we partner with, it, with the information that the Lord's giving us. So partnership is going to be key. And the reason I put that one on there is because in the Exodus account, look at this. This is Moses and Aaron talking to Pharaoh about all the plagues that are about to happen. And he says this. They said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or the sword. Partnership was required even for the Israelites. Partnership was required. You got to get out of here, okay? And they had to start the trajectory of getting out of Egypt. They had the revelation, or God might even strike us with these plagues. And so partnership is gonna be key. And I, I just want us, I mean, nothing better than preaching the version of Christianity and the Bible where we obey the Bible and we obey the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is normal Christianity, but man, is it going to become hyper important that we are actually doing it. And I'll say this and then we'll, we'll break up. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of people that call themselves Christians that do not obey the Bible and do not seek after obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That, and that's, that's going to change. Lots of that is going to change because the other version of Christianity won't survive. The version of follow the Bible, adhere to the commandments of God, you know, walk with him, love him, listen for his voice, and obey him like a sheep. These are going to be the realities of the body of Christ in, in the coming, uh, you know, years and decades. All right, break up into small groups. We'll do some small group discussion, and then we'll get back together uh, for some questions uh, at the end. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and...
Transition now, so if I can get your attention. We're gonna transition now to our time of Q&A. And so uh, for those who are joining us online, I'll repeat the question uh, from the groups. That way you can uh, hear it too and then hear the answer. Okay, wrap up those conversations. And uh, we'll start over here. Uh, group question number one. That's a great question. So the, uh, the, the question is, the Psalm 91 protection clause, is that only good for when you're geographically in the building? Uh, I think there's going to be some things that are going to be tied to the building, but what it actually says is whoever. So it doesn't say whenever. It says whoever. And so I think it's going to be, there's going to be some significant components to give you a, a little bit of a picture of the obedience factor back in Exodus, which again, if we need a picture, the Exodus in so many ways uh, shows us what to expect in Exodus round two called the end times. So in the, uh, in the uh, instance of the blood over the doorposts, that one pr uh, act of prophetic obedience, blood over the front door, protected the entire house and everybody that was in it. And so there's going to be, uh, I believe there's going to be a lot of um, moments that are related to obedience um, where the Lord might even say, hey, for this one, I need everybody at the house of prayer. Um, but the other thing is, when we're talking about the, the reality of all the property being confiscated, all the, you know, the Antichrist governmental officials out on the run, the house of prayer is going to be so decentralized from the building and so much more about the reality wherever it's occurring. And so, you know, we had a house of prayer in my living room and it was still my living room. And while we've got more going on now and we own a building, there was a house of prayer that was one of the most legitimate houses of prayer anywhere in the area happening in a living room. And I think there's going to be a lot of living rooms and barns and this is and that's. So it's the reality, not the building, but the the, the building in the context of David writing Psalm 91, if it was David, um, but the, the building in the context of Psalm 91, it wasn't about the tent, it was about the activity going on in the tent. And so the tent was a famous tent because of the activity going on in the tent and the presence of the Lord that was there because of the activity. So it has less to do with the building. Uh, it's the sacred buildings are not the big deal. It's the sacred assemblies that are gathered in buildings that, uh, that matter. So uh, short answer, I think the Lord is going to make it obvious when there are specific places we need to be and specific places we need to not be. Uh, but I also think that uh, the majority of what is being expressed in Psalm 91, as well as the majority of the heart of what's in Psalm 27, the one thing I desire, this one thing I'll seek, I think that the majority of what's being communicated is the life reality of the commitment to the, the corporate expression of night and day prayer and the presence of God that occurs in that reality. And that can happen in a shed, at a park, on a rooftop, in a living room. So, uh, yes and no. Okay, good. Uh, next question, let's go back there. Andy? Andy? 
So uh, in the scenario where someone is uh, uh, a sincere believer and they are operating in sincerity outside of community and they are in a, in a deep prayer relationship with the Lord on their own, uh, will they experience the same blessings as those that are part of corporate expressions? I, I think there won't be any of those. And the reason I think that is because from the difficulty of everybody losing their jobs all the same week when the Antichrist is now in charge and Christians can't continue to have a job because they won't take the mark of the beast so they can't get a paycheck, plus they're being identified as those that are walking with Christ and in, in opposition to the enemy. Uh, they're on the run from the Antichrist. Their possessions are being sold. Their properties are being uh, sold and, and uh, you know, taken over by bad guys. Um, we're going to be so in need of God and so in need of each other that the idea of trying to do it on your own will be absurdity. And right now, it should be and isn't. But we don't have a desperate revelation of our need for one another. I believe the context of what we're walking into will create the most uh, painful, purifying, power-filled, making the bride ready reality. I think that we're walking into the, the Psalm, uh, the uh, uh, Revelation 19, the bride has made herself ready. I think that the context of that is the persecution, the purification, the moving in signs and wonders, the greater works than these, the power dynamic, uh, all the pain of what's going on, and the bride, the collective unified bride will be walking together. So I think, it, uh, where is that person hiding out by themselves where they're even able to continue to hide out by themselves without the prophetic revelation that the other believers are adding to it. I just think it's going to be a non-issue. Uh, so whether they will or not, I guess if somebody got cornered, it was the Lord's will, then for sure. Uh, yes, the Lord will protect his own. Um, but the, the, the subject matter right now, there's this, there's this interesting perspective that is, uh, it's not like a slap in the face of what the word of God teaches, but it is ignoring a significant amount of what the word of God teaches of trying to live individual Christianity. That is not what the New Testament presents anywhere. The New Testament presents us as the body of Christ, us as the family of God, a priesthood together. We need one another. In fact, the body can't be the body if it's just a finger on a table that's gross. And so we're supposed to need each other and operate together. And I think where we're headed is gonna bring the bride of Christ into perfect maturity, which will include unity which will include working together. So I, I think it's going to be a non-issue. Uh, but if there was the one-off person that was trapped somewhere and they love Jesus, I'm sure Jesus will take care of them. Okay, um, uh, this group, Caitlin. Okay, that makes it easy. Um, Luke. Yeah, so Psalm 91 and martyrdom, how do those two things relate? So um, I guarantee the two witnesses are going to know Psalm 91 and at least the concept. Yet we're told they can't be martyred. No one can touch them. And then they will be martyred. They will die. And we know exactly when it's going to happen. So there's this interesting connection there because they're going to be operating, if you will, in Psalm 91 until they aren't anymore. 
And there are a lot of people that are going to wind up dying martyrs. And our next session is going to really touch on that. Uh, the, the, the fifth seal, which uh, we'll, we'll cover uh, in our next session, is all about martyrdom. And, uh, and this question, how many martyrs do there have to be before Jesus you know, comes back? And uh, so the, the, the subject of uh, martyrdom and protection, um, it's a bit mysterious. Because, at least in the case with the two witnesses, they can't be martyred. And it's really clear. Nobody can touch them. And then, in a moment, they're martyred because of a timing issue. And so, I would say this. Um, there is, there's no Bible verse that I can think of related to martyrdom that says we're supposed to fear it. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of them that say we're supposed to just run right into it if it's asked of us. You know, and it says that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And so we want to be those that are looking at what the word of God says, that it's a privilege and it's an honor. You don't try to get martyred, nor do you try to not get martyred. And so if martyrdom is your destiny, you just look up to heaven like Stephen did. And just with those prophetic eyes of faith, you see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And it's what's supposed to happen that day. We look at martyrdom as like, the worst thing that could ever happen, and that's not the way that the picture in the scriptures is for the one that gets martyred. It is that, uh, that level of intensity and pain for those that lost their friend to martyrdom. There's lots of tears lost over the friend. But for the one that's martyred, I don't see any verses that are like, man, that stinks for you. You know, can't believe it. In fact, I see that they come to life and they're guaranteed a place in government to rule with Christ for a thousand years uh, at the end of the age. We see that in uh, Revelation 20 um, when the, the, those that are beheaded for the name of Jesus in the last days, they come to Christ, uh, they, they, uh, they receive the resurrection and all of those that are martyred in the period of the Great Tribulation are promised places of government in Jesus' uh, millennial kingdom. So it's actually an honor and not something we're supposed to be stringing back from. So the, the backside of that, you know, where, kind of circle back around. Um, there are going to be a ton of people martyred and it's going to be the plan of the Lord that that actually is permitted. And we will see that next week when we look at Revelation uh, um, 6, when we look at the fifth seal. So, um, yeah, hopefully that'll answer more of that then. Uh, last question over here. Okay, yes, Lord. So I'm going to do my best to change the question and answer the one I want to answer. The, uh, the, the question is more or less uh, related to the multiplication of food. Practically, what could that look like or what's that going to look like? Um, I think it's going to look like a lot of things. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing, we don't know exactly what manner the fish were prepared that Jesus multiplied. Were they raw? I don't think so, because it was the kid's lunch. So if it was his lunch, he was planning to eat it. it. So it probably wasn't raw. Probably mom cooked it at home. So it's cooked food. Cooked in that day, cooked the way that mom cooked fish. So 
what does that look like when mom cooks, you know, chicken tetrazzini? You know, it's like, and we multiply it. I mean, that's, I, I don't, I, I think if we're going to look at the, the multiplication of food examples that we have, we see bread being multiplied, not grain. So it was cooked bread. Well, what kind of bread? Well, what if it was a tasty little cake? You know, it's like, well, then the tasty cake got multiplied. So, so I think the thought process of multiplying the food that you have um, and maybe even supernaturally food appearing, but we also have Elijah and the ravens and the reality of those same wild animals that are killing other people might well be bringing us lasagna. And so it's like, I mean, you know, I mean, there's going to be some interesting things. I'll, here's one thing I'm telling you. We are not going to be bored. Okay, we are going to, there are going to be moments where we just look at each other and shake our heads and go, look what the cat drug in, you know? Uh, Stouffer's lasagna, praise the Lord. You know what I mean? There are going to be some serious, interesting moments in our future. And so, so I think, I think that the Lord, just like he writes, when, whenever you experience a miracle in your life, you experience a miracle that is very contextual to you. It was things that you know about in your culture in English. I mean, it was things, it came to you in a way that was meaningful to you. So I don't think that it's gonna be like all the, manif all the, uh, the multiplication of food is gonna be, you know, Exodus manna. There might be some of that. I think we actually have Exodus manna as just a picture. So there's, there's a lot of places in the word that we see multiplication of food. Um, and so I think it's going to look uh, any manner of different ways. I, just, I'm going to leave you with this. Um, when, when all heck breaks loose and we have all manner of problems mounting against the church and we have so much less complications of our lives, you don't have a job, at least not a traditional one, because it's being monitored and you can't trade in the system because you didn't take the mark of the beast. You don't have a this, you don't have a that, and we're all needing each other, we're all close together. One thing I desire, the Lord, this one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, as in 100% of the days, seven days a week, 365, that will be normal. We will be together. And we'll be hidden in there and there, and what will we do while we're together? The baseline will be prayer and worship. The baseline of Christian experience will be, God, we all had these dreams last night. Help us interpret them. Give us the word. God, you just gave us the interpretation. We praise you. We love you. We're worshiping you. While we're in worship, we're getting visions. The visions are what we're supposed to do tomorrow. I mean, it, this is going to be so normal. And again, part of the reason that we struggle right now, if you read Psalm 27.4, one thing I desire of the Lord, and you try to rectify that against your normal American busy life, it becomes a very difficult thing for you to rectify. How am I supposed to go to that building seven days a week? I've got so much going on. I think so many of the complications and the hurdles will be forcibly removed from us, and we will be in situations where it becomes far more organic and normal. That, that will be a far more normal outflow uh, of our lives and our love for Jesus. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.